play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, the show where celebrities share stories about the foods they love most, and we dig into the history, culture, and science of those meals with experts from around the world. Today on the program, Bill Nye. Science, the key to our future. AKA Bill Nye the Science Guy. Bill has a resume as long as Santa's nice and naughty list, but here are some of the highlights. He started his career with Bill Nye the Science Guy, a wacky science education TV show that earned him 18 Emmys. He hosted Bill Nye Saves the World, and most recently, The End is Nye. Bill is CEO of the Planetary Society, the world's largest space interest group. He's written a ton of books. He's been a contestant on Dancing with the Stars, and I thought this was random. He has a patent for a ballet toe shoe. Bill and I talk about why he started wearing his signature bow tie, his perfect baguette recipe, and as you do, we accidentally veered into the topic of cannibalism. Cannibalism, you know, is a, is a fraught issue. I would eat a person if the circumstances were right. That is your official warning, not to go into the woods with me or probably don't go anywhere alone with me, especially if you look delicious. Mmm. And speaking of delicious, there's really no way to segue out of cannibalism. I chat with two experts about the importance of the baguette in French society. All that coming up later in the show, but first, my conversation with Bill Nye. Hello. Oh, hello. We are, we are starting video. There we are. Yes. There we are. Hi, Bill Nye. Nice to meet you. So good to be met. Well, let's start at the beginning of your life. So I know that your mom was a code breaker during World War II. For... Or that's what she said she was. You know, she didn't talk about it. She wouldn't give you details. Even by the time you were born, she wouldn't share anything? By the time I was born, with respect, that was only 10 years after the war was over. No, she wouldn't talk about it in 1992, 50 years mm. after she was recruited, they wouldn't talk. They had a reunion of these gals at Fort Myer. It's in Arlington, Virginia. They still wouldn't talk about it. What did you do during the war, Gwynny? There was a gal, Gwynny Gaminder. Nope, nope. They were sworn in to the U.S. Navy. So ladies, welcome. Uh, we're glad that you're here to help with the war effort. Keep in mind, if you talk about what we do here, you will be shot. So. Let's get to work. My mom was like, what? I thought this was going to be fun. You know, like, back to you. Yeah. So my question is, because your mom was a World War II codebreaker, she had this important job. There was a couple of years where your dad was a prisoner of war. I'm curious. Four years. Four years. I'm curious what your eating life was like growing up, because it doesn't sound like your mom was a, a typical housewife. And for your dad, you know, living in those conditions for four years, I'm assuming that also affected the way he saw food and eating. We grew up not wasting food. My wife says she admires that. But is that a result of the war or is that a result of the depression? Combination, you work hard not to waste food. And uh, we refer all the time to Bachelor Bill scavenging, which was a, a way of life for decades. <laughs> Tell me more about Bachelor Bill scavenging. Well, so the other day, I guess it was night before last, I had some coconut rice left over from a lunch I bought with chicken. And then I had some uh, rice with lemon and shallots and um, dates. 
and I combined them to have enough rice. Now, you could argue that those two flavors might not be the chef's first choice, but we're not going to throw the rice out, people. But the other thing, the main thing of the food I was brought up with, my grandmother, my mother's mother, was French. She came to the States with a U.S. Army captain after the First World War. She was a war bride. And so the food I was brought up with was largely French. Uh, you know, the Nyes, Benjamin Nye came to the colony of Massachusetts in uh, the 1630s. So there'd be this New English thing, ham and cabbage. Oh, great. <laughs> it's good, <laughs> but moderation, people. Uh, but clam chowder, I mean, bring it on. So uh, I was brought up with a lot of French cooking and a lot of what I would call New English seafood. And look, I'm fine. So you said your grandmother, was she the one who was cooking or was your mom cooking French food? Oh, my or? mom cooked. Oh, my okay. mom cooked all the time. Yeah. Okay. But then when she entered the workforce full time, when I was long about fifth grade, she uh, took a full time job at the Postal Service Institute, which was nowadays we would call a Beltway Bandit to provide statistical information, actuarial information, I guess, to the government. And now after that, my dad did a great deal of cooking. And at breakfast, my dad did the cooking for sure, whether it was fried egg and toast or oatmeal. And then the occasional, and well, not occasional, the regular cream of wheat. What were a couple of your favorite things you'd have for dinner growing up? Anytime you'd have good chicken. My brother, in Boy Scout manly fashion, often was uh, assigned cooking what we call lemon chicken on the hibachi, very efficient charcoal barbecue. And that was always, a, for me anyway, a treat. And then once a while, through the success, I guess, of my dad's salesmanship, we would have a steak. And that was pretty great. Uh, you know, my dad sold advertising to banks. And you may, I don't know if you're old enough to recall this tradition that emerged of steak knives reach a certain level. <laughs> wow, here's steak knives. Uh, and so now and then we would have a steak and that was pretty great. Now you can argue whether or not you should eat beef steak, but as a kid, that was pretty great. Bill grew up in Washington, D.C. He got a mechanical engineering degree at Cornell University, where he was greatly inspired by an astronomy class he took with Carl Sagan. And after graduation, he moved to Seattle to work as an engineer at Boeing. Bill applied to NASA's astronaut training program four times, but he never got in. So he took the logical next step and got into comedy. In 1978, Bill won a Steve Martin lookalike contest and soon after was inspired to try stand-up comedy. He led a double life, inventing a hydraulic resonance suppressor tube at Boeing by day and performing stand-up comedy at night. Those who live in the Seattle area of a certain age are very familiar with a show called Almost Live, which was kind of like Seattle's answer to Saturday Night Live. You got into that, you were doing stand-up comedy. So are people to this day surprised that a scientist can also be funny? Why do scientists have this reputation for being so serious? The scientists that I know are, are dry. That is to say their humor is subtle and very good. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I will grant you that engineers have a reputation for being cheerless and weird. That's a yeah. joke, everybody. That's irony. <laughs> Almost Live. Just keep in mind, listeners, viewers, that at the height of our powers as the Almost Live cast and st writing staff, 
Almost Live was on at 11.30 on Saturday nights and Saturday Night Live didn't start till midnight because our show was more popular than Saturday night. This was when SNL, Saturday Night Live, was maybe not doing its best work. King TV, K-A-N-G, elected to put our show on before uh, because it was so popular. And, you know, I mean, I was part of the staff and I did my best and this and that, but John Keister was brilliant. Joe Guppy was brilliant, or still is. Bob Nelson, oh my gosh. And I will never do anything as good as what Pat Cashman did. I mean, just let it go. I work with some really funny people who worked very hard. It's great. The Bill Nye the Science Guy character was created by Ross Schaefer, host of Almost Live. And Bill would do science experiments on the show, a tradition he carried on when he developed his own TV shows. The Science Guy got his start cooking with liquid nitrogen, which you can't beat it. (laughs) I was a solid bit, man. That was good. What would you cook with liquid nitrogen? We had celery that was limp. You can make it quite crisp at minus 196 Celsius, minus 320 Fahrenheit. And uh, the onions, you get them cold with liquid nitrogen, hit it with a carving knife. But it shatters and makes the same sound as broken glass. That's pretty great. Payoff, and I spent a lot of time with this at the Pacific Science Center as a science explainer. The payoff is chewing frozen marshmallows, and then the steam comes out of your nose. It's, come on, you can't beat it. Condensation trail of coming out of your nostrils. Tell me how the process, what do you do with the marshmallows before you put it in your mouth? You get it really cold. Liquid nitrogen is really cold. And the charming, amazing thing about liquid nitrogen it's very safe. You breathe nitrogen all day, all the time. 70% of the air is nitrogen. It involves heat going out of the marshmallows, not going into the marshmallows. And then when you chew them with a puddle of saliva on your tongue, you get quite a bit of water vapor generated that condenses to a cloud as it comes out of your nose. Wow. Wow. That was a long explanation for chewing <laughs> frozen marshmallows. When you put it in the liquid nitrogen, it doesn't stick to your tongue. Yeah, you can burn your tongue. I'm not a ballerina or ballet performer, but this business of suffering for your art is well worth it. It <laughs> led to a whole career. Let's see your tongue. Is it very burnt? My tongue's okay now. Okay. Uh, yeah, okay, good. Generally, your tongue will heal. If you've burned it, you don't always burn it or damage taste buds. A lot of times it works just great. When we come back, Bill Nye's last meal, and I talk to a much revered octogenarian bread scholar who says a lot of swear words that I bleeped out just for you. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off the beaten path vacation spots with small town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbow, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. 
Go to visitkitsap.com slash your last meal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P. Or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Let's talk about your last meal, Bill Nye. What would your last meal be? Well, first of all, if it's really your last meal, I think you have a lot on your mind. Do you know it's your last meal or not? This is a key question. If it's just a great meal, then uh, you can count on shallot, date, lemon, chicken, which has um, become a household favorite here. It's very easy if you have a cocotte, a, a Dutch oven. It's very easy to make it where you can cook it partially on the stove and then partially in the oven. Then I'd probably have a martini, probably made with Bombay Sapphire. My wife prefers Hendrix gin, so we alternate. That's all good. And there's no losers here. It's win-win. It's a, uh, it's a young marriage, so you're still very much compromising and being very, very nice. Yeah, soon I'll just be insufferable. <laughs> yep. No, if she wants Hendrix the rest of our life lives, I'll, I'll roll with that. Not miserable husband, not miserable life is the old saying, I think. Uh, I'm paraphrasing. Then, uh, and the word misery is an exaggeration, everybody. That's irony. The best jokes are always explained. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, yeah. Let me teach you about comedy. <laughs> did not know that. So then, um, uh, thanks for the tip. And then You're welcome. So we'll probably have green beans, you know. During the pandemic, I quite the jag of making our own bread. I, we'd probably have a fresh baguette. 250 grams of joy. What is that? The, the, it's a, now an official food of France or something like that. Wait, did you say 250 grams of joy? Something like that. Yeah, it's a French. I'm saying it's French. The prime minister declared that the baguette is the greatest symbol of France ever to be Franced or whatever the heck. <laughs> I miss the, it. I mean, the, you should know this with your French lineage. All your bones but, are probably baguettes of various sizes. Sure. No, but I do know that you get four baguettes out of a kilo of flour. I mean, I can tell you that 250 grams each. Yeah. Okay. If you've read, I think it's flour, water, salt, and yeast. But if I were in charge, it would have ended with the word salt because it's a punchier punch word. It would have been flour, <laughs> water, yeast, and salt if I had written or been the copy editor or what have you. Uh, and this is Ken Forkish's book about mm -hmm. how to make bread. You have to read 80 pages about his life journey to get to the recipe. And I'm convinced now that he has a he recommends a little too little water. My opinion, I love the Ken Forkish and he changed my life. On about 10 or 15 milliliters, we don't agree. He may have 720 grams of water, but I tell you it's, it's closer to 740, 735. I recommend 22 grams of salt. There's an argument for 21, but I think you'll be happier with 22 grams. Noted. Many scales now are digital. And you can distinguish between 21, 22. If you're working with an analog scale, which I was doing in Montreal last year, while I was shooting a show there for almost three months, I had an analog scale. You, 21, 22, it's hard to see. So, and you're uh, using the metric system in Canada, too. It threw off your oh, whole kids, you got to use the metric system. So, I mean, I love you all, but it's so much easier. Now, let me ask you this, Rachel. So yeah. what's the volume <laughs> of 720 grams of water? Oh, God, Bill Nye. The 720 like milliliters. Oh, okay. That's it. Everything is easier. 
the metric yes. system is based on water and you have 10 fingers. It's not the length of the king's foot after a few beers. It's much easier. With every reference, so, you lose me more and more. <laughs> now, what do you mean? This distance is based on some British royal's foot instead of something reasonable, like, like a 10 billionth of the distance from the equator to the North Pole passing through Paris. <laughs> which is what a meter is. Let's but, go back really quick to your meal. We'll have a baguette. We'll have chicken, lemon, date, and shallots. We'll have green beans. If it's really the last meal, I guess we'll also have another starch, like uh, corn on the cob or something. Oh, you're wild. Yeah, yeah. And then if it's really the last meal, we'll have vanilla ice cream with butterscotch, I guess. Ooh. To me, vanilla ice cream is just about as good as it gets. I mean, I'm open-minded. I know you, the chocolate people are all crazy for Rocky Road, Triple Fudge. Is there an R in the month? Stephen Colbert, Super Sunday or whatever it is. That's okay. An excellent vanilla ice cream is unbeatable in my book. Well, in a recent episode, I actually spoke to a woman who wrote a book about ice cream in the history. And she was saying that she thinks it's offensive that people say that it's plain because uh, she said it's not plain. It's just become common why people kind of disregard vanilla. But that vanilla itself actually is quite a complex flavor. Oh, my goodness. I couldn't agree more. And the reason it's commonplace is because it's so great. Okay. <laughs> the reason they sell a lot of Coca-Cola is because it's delicious. What's not to love kind of thing. I've enjoyed fudge. Like, don't get me. In fact, a treat beyond treats was when Jackie Jenkins and I, a.k.a. my mother, would, on your birthday, make the fudge sauce from the joy of cooking. I can do it from memory very easily. This is the grand kind that turns hard on ice cream and enraptures children. For his last meal, Bill Nye wants shallot date lemon chicken, a martini with Bombay sapphire gin, green beans, a French baguette, corn on the cob, and vanilla ice cream with butterscotch sauce. Is it all just based on the fact that you like these flavors or is there any kind of significance attached to any of the dishes? You know, when I eat birds, I feel like I'm eating dinosaurs and I'm okay with that. Oysters, I do very much enjoy oysters and I claim uh, Liza's Mignonette sauce is generally better than any mignonette sauce you get in a restaurant. But uh, the whole cocktail sauce, the spicy red cocktail sauce, I don't get it. I don't either. It's such a waste. It covers out. everything out. Okay, so exactly. recently I went to Safeway and uh, at the fish counter, they were giving away free samples of Dungeness crab, which I was like, Safeway, you are so flush right now. But in each little plastic cup, sample cup, they had doused it in freaking cocktail sauce. And it was just, it was so sad. Disappointing. Some people think that's great. But speaking of oysters, I'm a big fan of oysters. I guess I should have included those in the, in the last meal with the mignonette sauce. Oysters, fabulous chicken, green beans, because it's the last meal, a second starch, a baguette, vanilla ice cream, and uh, I imagine a martini, for crying out loud, early on, and then some wonderful wine. Now, if you want a salsera to go with the chicken, I'm on board, but I, like, I would like a red wine. If it's the last meal, I'd like a red wine. Part of Bill Nye's last meal is a French baguette, something he learned to make during the pandemic. And as you heard, he is 
quite exacting about. And remember this? 250 grams of joy. What is that? So now an official food of France or something like that. Wait, did you say 250 grams of joy? What Bill is referring to is the French baguette being added to UNESCO's list of intangible cultural heritage. It's a way to recognize and preserve oral traditions, traditional crafts, rituals, festivals, food, and so much more. You know, we have President Macron in power at the moment, and he loves French bread. When um, the French bread was included on the UNESCO list in November 2022, he said, I quote, 250 grams of magic and perfection in our daily lives, a French way of life. That's his take on French bread. That's Janine Marsh, editor of The Good Life France. She's an English woman who's been living in the French countryside since 2004. The Good Life France is read by 5 million people every month. And Janine will tell you almost everything you need to know about living and traveling in France. So what defines a French baguette? What makes it a French baguette? There's quite a lot of laws around French baguettes. You know, if you have an artisan baguette, and I don't think this applies to supermarkets, so I'm talking specifically boulangeries that are run by bakers who really know what they're doing and are artisan bakers. Their bread has to be made on the premises where the bread is sold, and it can only contain four ingredients, which is wheat flour, water, salt and yeast. You can't freeze the bread. You can't add any additives or preservatives, which means uh, they go stale within 24 hours. So yes, really a lot of rules around there. My bread man, because I live in this little village in the middle of nowhere, so a man comes and delivers the bread three times a week to us. He says, actually, there are five ingredients, but one is not listed. It's passion because, you know, it's not an easy life being a baker. I don't think they make huge amounts of money. They have to get up really early in the morning. I mean, my baker gets up at three in the morning so that he's got bread ready at six o'clock for the first customers. Um, And in reality, the numbers of artisan bakers are dropping pretty much year on year. Like 50 years ago, there were 55,000 artisan bakers in France, but now there are only 35,000. So I say, if you visit France, support your local baker and buy your bread at the boulangerie, not the supermarket. So how important is the baguette to French culture? I think that the French baguette is a really, really important part of French life. I mean, it's a symbol of French life. The French actually have a saying, if something's miserable in your day, they say, ooh, it would be long comme un jour sans pain. As you know, the day is as long as a day without bread. And that that means it's really, really miserable. So, yes, hugely important. And yes, the French pretty much do eat bread every day. 98% of French people eat bread every single day. If you go to the local boulangerie where I am, there is a queue in the morning because people do want it straight out of the oven. And then the baker shuts uh, about 12 o'clock and he doesn't open again till three o'clock because he's making a new batch of bread. And then there's a queue again at three o'clock when the, bre- the fresh bread comes in. And some bakeries, if they're really big, they'll also do a third batch of baking in the afternoon for people to pick up their bread, bread on the way home. So yes, massively, massively uh, important. My wife, who's French, said to me today, eating her endive salad, Ah, this was unbearable. I hate to have a meal without bread. There was no bread in the house. For her, a meal is not complete without bread. That's true for fewer and fewer Frenchmen and women as we speak. That's Stephen Kaplan, a historian and world-renowned expert on French bread. He's written a bunch of books about it, and he's a professor emeritus at Cornell University. 
which is a happy coincidence because that's where Bill Nye went to school. The single most important fact about French bread consumption since 1900 is that it has been going down continually. In 1900, the French were eating probably about 600 grams per person. Today, on average, 75 grams per person. That's, that's very little. So you, you can be very impressed if someone says six billion baguettes a year, most of which are lousy baguettes. That's something else. Consuming less and less bread, the population is, in some sense, liberating itself from its uh, age-old dialogue with bread as being central to its identity. And for me, this is a shame. So why are people eating less bread? Is it because there's just lots of other foods available? I'm not sure if the gluten-free lifestyle is as big in France as it is in the U.S., or I'm wondering if people are just wanting to eat fewer carbs. People are eating less and less bread, not suddenly, but for the last 120 years, because they needed fewer heavy calories, because they had less physical, hard physical labor to do, because they had uh, mechanized transport, they had mechanized factories. Modernization frees people from a certain dependence upon bread. Uh, And over the course of time, I argue that people simply ate less and less bread because it wasn't very good. It was bread that was relatively tasteless. It was made by bakers who were not paying as much attention as they should have to, to bread quality and were paying more attention to trying to find ways, understandably, to make their profession less onerous, less difficult, less arduous, less crushing because baking is a a, a very hard task, especially when you have to bake all night long. But um, they were not baking a bread that was appealing to people, so people were eating less and less of it. Uh, And at the same time, there are many other uh, food opportunities. France is a victim of Americanization. Stephen has a lot of strong opinions surrounding France and its bread. Tell me the history of French bread. I know I'm sure it's very long. I, I can't. I can't. No, you're going to have to re, recast that question. I've written literally thousands of pages about. Yes. So I, I can't tell you the history of French bread unless you're more specific. I know that the bread used to be very long and then they ended up shortening it. Can you kind of just no, talk no, about? No, 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 no. That, that's that's a bullshit. That's just not a serious question. Uh, oh. it's, based upon, it's based upon false premises. One of the reasons it's so important for me to talk to people like you is because there are so many false pieces of information on the internet. I've learned this throughout the years. Let's do a little bit of myth busting, or maybe it's not a myth. I just have another thing that I had read, and this is actually on Wikipedia. Uh, It says, some say Napoleon Bonaparte created the French baguette to allow soldiers to more easily carry bread with them. Since the round shape took up a lot of space, Bonaparte requested they be made into a skinny stick shape with specific measurements to slide into the soldier's uniform. That is bullshit. <laughs> it's a tale that recurs. It's it's bullshit for all sorts of reasons. Do you know what though? No one knows if it was Napoleon or if it was you know the metro workers in the early 1900s. No, nobody really knows the truth, so it may not be bullshit at all. Let me attempt to answer your first question. After all, okay, bread is a central part of French life for hundreds of years because it was the ration of survival of the vast bulk of the population. They depended upon bread, not only for all of their calories, but for much of their protein as well. It was not simply uh, a food, it was the core of their existence. This was literally the story of bread in France for hundreds and hundreds of years. The French didn't fully free themselves from this dependence until really the end of the 19th century, and then two world wars 
plunge them back into the same kind of dependence. So that's just a tiny sliver of the history of why the French eat so much bread. Janine shares some customs that are unique to the French and their baguette. I mean, the French have very specific things they do that I I don't see anywhere else. Like, for instance, dipping your baguette in coffee is very French. doesn't appeal to me at all. And also dipping it in your hot chocolate. You don't generally get butter with your baguette in France or with bread at all because um, the French consider that bread is for mopping up the sauce, which is a really important aspect of French food. So you wouldn't put butter on the bread because it would ruin the sauce. You know, there are rules around things with baguettes, things like um, there's one really weird superstition, which is you should never put the baguette on the table upside down because it brings bad luck. (laughs) (laughs) I love superstitions. (laughs) (laughs) I don't believe in them, but I love hearing them. Yes. Well, any bread, actually. So never put your bread on the table upside down. You'll invite bad luck into the house. Noted. I mean, I already have a black cat. It's I'm already doomed. (laughs) Might as well put the bread upside down. When we come back, Bill and I and I disagree about cannibalism. If you like listening to Your Last Meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes. This is from a video you did a long time ago with a woman named Hannah Hart. You said, it is a troubling and amazing thought that you and I are made of food. What does that mean? That's something I like to tell kids, kids of all ages. The reason my hand is bigger than your hand is because I've eaten more food. (laughs) That's what you're made of. It's extraordinary. That and air. (laughs) Wow. Did you mean it as we're made of the food we eat or we're made of food because we're meat? Uh, I meant it first way. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that uh, cannibalism, you know, is a is a fraught issue. It's common enough in nature. When you do it with people, it leads to conflict. I have said that I would eat a person if the circumstances were right, because my eating curiosity is so high. I wouldn't want somebody killed. Wow. So <laughs> I wouldn't want someone killed so I could eat them. So you know, there have been just miserable, miserable times. Barely a century ago, people in um, Indonesia, what's now Indonesia, were eating each other because everybody was starving. I wouldn't want to be that horrible time either. Would you eat a person under the right circumstances? Not if you were starving, but if for some reason there was a person who donated their body to culinary science so that you could try Uh, it. I don't think so. I'm (laughs) open-minded, but the circumstances of that, I'd be very skeptical that this person really uh, did that. I'm open-minded, of course, but it brings to mind some really troubling images. Bill Nye, please believe me when I say I didn't think that cannibalism would come up during this interview. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the, the vegans of the world think that many, many of us are cannibals. A fundamental discovery in evolution is that we 
almost certainly have a common ancestor. As far as we know, there's only one type of living thing on Earth. Uh, once nature got a system, a self-replicating system working, it, that, it just took off. So the DNA is what makes all of us the same, basically the same as plants and other well, animals. Well, there's the, the vegan argument, which I'm sympathetic to. I had Christopher Kimball on the show, uh, formerly of America's Test Kitchen, your fellow bow tie wearer. And I asked him why he wore his bow tie always professionally. So I'm curious why you started with yours and how it became your signature. Well, so f- first of all, when you're working in the kitchen and you're on camera, a bow tie is way more practical than a straight tie. Yeah. For crying out loud, it does not slip into the soup, does not flop into the flask in the laboratory. Does but not jangle into it, the dinner. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what started it was I, I was in high school and uh, at the girls' athletic banquet. This is when the girls get their awards for gymnastics, field hockey, uh, ultimate frisbee, whatever it might be. The boys are the waiters. So I said to my colleagues, if we're going to be waiters, let's dress like waiters. And the reason waiters or servers wear bow ties is they don't get in the food. And by the way, when you're really dressed up, like at the gridiron dinner a few weeks ago, or the Emmys or the Oscars, what does a guy wear? He wears a tuxedo. And in general, he wears a bow tie. Yes, there's a few outliers who want to wear straight ties with a tuxedo, whatever. And cover up the studs. Okay, okay, whatever. Enjoy. So I started wearing bow ties. Then my father was very good with knots. He showed me how to tie a bow tie. Then trying to do stand-up comedy, I wanted to distinguish myself. So I started wearing a bow tie, and now it's just become a thing. A straight tie just seems so old-fashioned, fuddy-duddy, throwback, okay boomer, all that's everything. (laughs) Uh, troubling. How many do you have? It's over 500. They don't wear out. People give them to you. And that was Bill Nye's last meal. Okay, Bill Nye, I have to let you go now before we both get in trouble. Yeah, it's great. It's great seeing it. Same. It was really nice to meet you. Take care. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bill has a couple live speaking engagements coming up. He has many books for you to read and lots and lots for you to watch. Find a link to his website in the show notes. Thanks to Stephen Kaplan and Janine Marsh of The Good Life France for their bread, bread expertise. Really trying to make that portmanteau. I heard a podcast recently talking about the French law that requires people take a very long lunch break. It's told from the perspective of an American woman who was living in France and for many years and working there, and she didn't want to take the break. Uh, Yes, a two-hour break is perfectly normal, and I have to admit I'm not very French in that respect because I tend to, you know, work through work through my lunch hour, try and get my work done so I can finish early. But no, I mean none of my French neighbours do. They're horrified that I don't take a two-hour break. My neighbour Remy, I mean, I can set my clock by him because he goes past at exactly 12 o'clock on his way to his belle maman, his uh, mother-in-law who lives next door to me because she cooks him a three-course meal every lunch hour. And then at two o'clock, there he goes, back down the hill, pootling past every single day. And (laughs) I know a a two-hour lunch break with a three-course meal is normal. And most employers will say quite openly that they believe it improves people's work ethic because you feel good. You've had a proper break. 
you've let your mind rest you've eaten something that you enjoy and then you come back to work and you're happy to get on with it that's what they say have you noticed that do you think that it really does make people feel happier yes <laughs> yeah this episode was produced by me original theme music by prom queen and mixed by oscar-winning audio nerd my bud randy torres thank you your last meal is a slide down the dinosaur production. You should subscribe to my newsletter. Uh, it is where I alert you to events that are happening. Sometimes I send out recipes. Sometimes there is a way for you to win a free book. You can find it at rachelbell.substack.com or of course, find a link in the show notes. Make sure you leave a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. Follow along on Instagram. I'm Hello Rachel Bell. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. You sound pretty good, but there's like a little bit of an echo. Let me turn, let me turn the microphone down a little bit. Seriously, maybe it's cranked up too much. Hang on. Whoa. Oh. Hang on, hang on. Yeah, it's up pretty high. Hang on. Two, two, two. Is that any better? Actually, yeah. It might have just been a little overmodulated. Overmodulated. I know it's a big word, right? I know it's a good <laughs> yeah, it's a fine word. In France, do people actually wear berets, or is it kind of just like a cliche at this point? Uh, it's pretty much cliche. Yeah. Um, old men wear them when they're working out the garden. Actually, my bread man wears one, so it's, it's more of a, a working man thing than a fashion thing. Do you know the answer to this? Last year I grew carrots and I'd never had luck before and they finally grew. But every single one of them was one of those ones with the two legs. It looked like some, you know, dude wearing pants. I think I'm not an expert on this, but that is the variety of seed you had going. Oh, really? But, I had pants carrots? Yeah, but I'm not, you guys, I'm an amateur farmer. I'm not uh, an expert on why your carrots had two legs. <laughs> well, then why did I get on this call in the first place? This is what I came uh, for. I'm, sorry, man. <laughs>